0: chapter 10, verse 11 through 17. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who brings glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. My friend Harold Savage, dear friend of mine, who preaches over on the east side of Atlanta, sometimes when we are able to talk or text on Mondays, I'll ask him how it went on Sunday during his time in the pulpit and how worship went at Snellville and those kinds of things. And Sometimes he'll respond, well, it was a double blessing. I, I got to preach, and I got to hear myself preach. <laughs> and, and if you know Harold, you know that he's not being braggadocious. He he's, That's Harold. But uh, I couldn't help but think about that as well as a couple of passages when uh, Ferris was up here announcing the total for your generous contribution for storm relief. Uh, that really is a double blessing in a sense, and here's what I mean by that. When Paul was ending his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4 and verse 17, I believe it is, no, 16, He said, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent to my need once and again to meet my necessities. So he was commending them and thanking them for uh, giving to his work and helping to support him. But then in in verse uh, 17 is where he says, but I seek not the gift. I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Paul is of the spiritual caliber that he's able to see that when a child of God gives a gift... And he's doing something in the name of the Lord, and he's giving that gift in God's name and for a godly purpose that we are as much blessed as the people who receive the gift. And I know that's hard for us to imagine in a practical way because those people desperately need monetary aid, but we really are blessed when we give, and I I hope that we all fully appreciate that You are to be commended for your generosity. I want us to begin our lesson tonight thinking about, and as I mentioned this morning, this is the first of two parts on faith and how to have it. I want you to imagine that there are two letters that are to be dropped off at the post office, and both of them, ostensibly, of course, are to be there to be delivered. And one of those letters is, is written on crisp and very expensive stationery, the kind of stationery, mind you, that I would never buy. But it's still very nice, ornate, intricate, all this, you know, beautiful design on it, and it's beautifully written and and it's typed and then on the address it's all done in calligraphy but the problem is it doesn't have a stamp on it the other letter that has been dropped off at the post office to be delivered is written on cheap paper it's written in pencil it's smudged it's filled with all kinds of mispronunciations or at least misspellings and and with bad grammar but it has the right stamp it has the right amount of postage Now, the question that I want to ask, and this is basically a rhetorical question because it's a very obvious question, is which of those two letters will get delivered? It's not going to be the beautiful letter written on intricate and ornate uh, stationery. It's going to be the letter that's written on cheap paper because it has the right stamp. It has the right postage on it. So our understanding of our relationship to God and even our prayer life is simply to say that it is not the eloquence of the form of our prayers that gets them delivered. It's the stamp of faith. May I say that again? It is not the eloquence of our prayers that gets them delivered. It is the stamp of faith that goes with those prayers. Paul was certainly, or James rather, was of that uh, a mind when he wrote by inspiration in James chapter 1. And in verse uh, 5, I believe it is where he says, if any man likes wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it will be given to him. But verse 6 says, but let him ask, what's this, in faith, for he who does not ask in faith is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. James is of the mind. And again, this is the mind of God speaking through James by inspiration. That when a child of God, even when we pray, when we go to the throne room of God and we're we're talking to him in our prayer life, we need to be doing that in faith. Faith is the postage that gets that prayer delivered to God himself. Now, I don't know. What all of you good people are going to be able to accomplish in your Christian lives as you sojourn here on this earth. But I can tell you, because I know from Scripture, the Bible tells me so, I can tell you the yardstick that will be used to measure what it is that you accomplish. And you may be thinking, well, what we accomplish is unquantifiable. But I believe that there is a yardstick that God's word speaks about. And the Bible says this very clearly and very plainly in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 29. We're going to be recurring and coming back to that from time to time in the next two lessons, Lord willing. Here's what Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. And I know that that is said within a specific context. and, And I would encourage you to go back and to look at the context and to assure yourselves that we are not taking that out of context. But I do believe that there is a general spiritual principle That Jesus wanted those disciples then and us today to understand, according to your faith, be it unto you. That's important. Get that. It is not according to your fame or your notoriety. That's not how you're going to be able to determine what you've accomplished in the name of Christ during your life. It's not according to the intensity of your feelings. It's not according to your fortune or even who you may call your friends. It's not according to your fate, Jesus says. It is according to your faith that it will be done unto you. And please don't miss that. Faith is the medium of exchange in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to say that again. Faith is the medium of exchange in the kingdom of heaven. And yet, as I mentioned this morning, we had the good sister from Utah that was calling and asking, do we have any material, as Randy's preached any lately, on the subject of faith? Because everywhere, God's people want to know more about faith. While we know that it is the lifeblood of the Christian's existence Many times we have difficulty actually being able to define and understand and illustrate faith in a practical way, so that we know what it is that we're trying to cultivate and culture in our lives. So again, the medium of exchange in the spiritual world is our faith. We have God's word that that is so. You know, when you go to the to the grocery store to get groceries, you you go and you pay with with money at least. Maybe electronically, but it's money nonetheless. Some of you take your coupons, but you're going to understand that the medium of exchange is is primarily going to be currency. But when we receive from God by faith, faith again is heaven's medium of exchange. Faith is the greatest, it is the greatest asset that we have. And unbelief is the greatest stumbling block. I'm going to submit a number of times in these lessons that unbelief is is the greatest wickedness that we can know in our lives, a failure to understand and to accept and to embrace what we know about God and, and the positive nature of our relationship with God and the need to grow in that faith as we mature in Christ Jesus and we try to be transformed more and more into his image on a daily basis. Unbelief, someone has said, is the mother's sin. Unbelief is the father's sin. It is the parent's sin. It is the sin of all sins. Unbelief, And we'll talk about why in just a moment. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible. It was unbelief that caused Mother Eve to sin against God in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? She just didn't believe God when God said, if you eat of that tree, you'll surely die. And yet the devil came along and said, you'll not surely die. Just added one word to the Lord's proposition, but that, that threw a wrench in everything. And, and Mother Eve b- chose to believe Satan rather than God. What was her problem? She, she just did not take God that is word. So when he said this is the way it is, by the way, I, most of the time when I preach on, on the Garden of Eden and the fall, I mention the fact that it's amazing to me that there was just one law during the existence of that first couple. God just said, I, j- I just got one rule, and here it is. And yet that was the one rule that they chose to break. That's absolutely amazing, but it says more perhaps than we would like to think about human nature. That was her problem, though. It was unbelief. Didn't, didn't believe God, did not take him at his word. And then you look over in the Old Testament, and you see how that unbelief locked the doors to the promised land for 40 years. What should have been an 11-day journey into the promised land took 40 years while those Israelites were trekking behind Moses and then Joshua. And the Israelites did not go into the promised land for all of those years. The Bible says... Because of, and you're probably a step ahead of me at this point, aren't you? Hebrews 3.19 says very plainly, it was because of their unbelief that they did not go in. Now, if you were to given those Israelites back then a, some kind of standardized test intellectually they probably could have responded to most of the questions about God and his nature and who created the universe and what it was that they were doing out there and, and, and maybe even in, in a self-evaluatory sort of way they could have said, here's, here's why we're wondering instead of at peace in the promised land in the first place. They could probably be giving you the answer to uh, at least enough of those questions to have gotten the passing score and maybe even up into the 90s. But it wasn't an intellectual problem that they were having so much. It was a spiritual problem. They understood what God wanted. They understood the promise that had been given to Father Abraham starting back in Genesis chapter 12. They understood how that they were to go into the land of Canaan and how that they were to drive out and even annihilate those people because these people were, were godless and, and that they were not to intermarry. with. They understood all of those things intellectually. It was the problem of taking God at his word that they had, that they were really wrestling with that, and they wrestled with it for 40 years. But again, Hebrews 3.19 tells us, and just boils it down for us. It was because of their unbelief they did not go in. Uh, unbelief tied to the hands of Jesus, even when Jesus was in his own hometown. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew 13:58. The biblical record simply says, He, Jesus, did not do my, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He would be wasting his time. Because of their unbelief, Jesus said, I, There are certain things that I cannot and will not do, even in my own hometown. The sovereign God then has apparently limited himself to working according to the faith to the belief quotient of his people. Imagine that. Think about the implications that has for world evangelism. Whether or not we go successfully to the world with the gospel and preach the gospel to every creature depends upon the faith quotient of us, his people whether or not we're willing to rely and trust in God and to take him at his word when he says, and I will be with you always, even into the end of the world. So let's stop and ask this obvious question in light of this discussion. What is the sin that sends people to hell today? And I know I fielded that question a number of times in my ministry and sometimes in the privacy of my church office. People have said, I I really want to know what it is that that just will automatically send your soul to hell? What will condemn you faster than anything? And and, and as I've looked at scripture, I've realized that it's it's not so much lying or murder or any of those obvious things. It's not arson. It's not pride. It's not even sexual perversion. It's not arrogance. It's unbelief. Because that's what gives rise to all the other sins in in the spiritual spectrum. You see, Jesus died, he shed his precious blood for all those other sins, but there's not anything that even the Son of God can do if we don't believe. And so unbelief can cause sin to take back over in the life of a child of God. Once having been liberated, emancipated from that spiritual bondage, we can allow Satan to take our lives back over again if we allow him, and our allowance of him to do that is dependent upon the level of our belief, the level of our faith that we're talking about tonight. The Bible says, he who, this by the way is John 3.18, and think about the proximity of this passage. John 3.16, just about everybody in the, in the crowd could tell you what's John 3.16, God so loved the world, you know the passage. Verse 17, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. But I think it's interesting that two verses after the golden text of the Bible In verse 18, here's what Jesus says. He who believes in him, that is in God, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. That is, unbelief itself will cause a person to be lost. Because if you don't believe, there's nothing else that can can happen for you in a positive and beneficial way in your spiritual life. God can't do anything with a hard and disbelieving heart. Mark it down. It's unbelief that shuts the door to heaven. I hope that if I stopped right there and Art led us in the Song of Invitation, we would have learned enough or been reminded of what we already know about the subject of faith to take sin very seriously in our lives and also take the cultivation of faith, the growth of faith in our hearts and lives even more seriously. You may remember that Jesus said in Mark 9 in verse 23, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And I know that that is not some kind of uh, spiritual panacea. That doesn't just mean that all you got to do is just you know, give God your Christmas list and really believe that he's going to give it to you. And guess what? Next morning it will be right there. That's not the, what the passage is dealing with at all. The Bible says, for example, in, in the book of Romans that the just shall live by faith. That's Romans 1 and verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Just as you and I live physically by breathing air and taking in nourishment from food, the Lord wants us to know that you live spiritually by faith. Faith, again, is the lifeblood of a Christian's existence. Think for a moment of all that comes to us by faith, and I I can't make this list infinitely long because we don't have that much time. I just want to mention a cross-section. Of some of the things that the Bible itself affirms that come to us by faith, faith is the vehicle by which these things are delivered, these blessings are delivered to our lives. First of all, salvation, Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification, salvation itself comes by faith. The fullness of the Spirit, Galatians 3.14, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Victory over the world. You know 1 John 5 verse 4 where John said for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We even have a song that we sing about that one. Victory over Satan comes by faith above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's Ephesians 6 and verse 16. And then finally our sanctification. Those who are sanctified by faith in me, Acts 26, 18 says. Now, while we could make that list much, much longer, we won't, but think then on the the converse side of that, on the other side of that coin, of all the problems that come to us when we do not have the right amount of faith in our lives. And, And by that, I don't mean just to say, you know, like you go to the faith station and say, fill her up. That's not how that works. But I am saying that if we're not living in faith and by faith, if we're not here with a primary objective and priority in our life to glorify God in everything that we do and say and even in what we think, then we've missed the boat in terms of how God wants to operate in our lives and how we can be most effective as ambassadors for him as we walk in this world for Jesus. Think of all the problems that come when we don't have that faith. Worry. God, I, I, didn't, I just didn't think you could handle this. People worry all the time. Why? Primarily because of a lack of faith in a benevolent God who has said that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Loneliness, when God seems so far away. Guilt. You know, our, our guilt gland is overactive because we don't trust God for cleansing. Someone who says that faith, watch this carefully, church. Faith is our acceptance of God's acceptance of us. Don't need to say that again. Faith really is our acceptance of God's acceptance of us. And I know a lot of Christians who've never really accepted the fact, the immutable promise of God that you are my people. And that is a sad, sad way to live. And it is a spiritually impotent way to live. And God wants us to have more joy and more peace in our lives than, than to live like that and, and, and even disobedience for, for all the reasons that we've already established tonight. If I truly believe God's word especially about sin and its consequences and how that it can incrementally erode my soul every time I violate God's will for me I would not violate God's will if I really lived by faith. I just pray that God will indelibly write the truths of these lessons in our hearts and that he will deepen their impression. And that we'll leave tonight with a greater desire to live by faith. Again, that's such a simple phrase. And we sing about it and we talk about it in our classes. But that really is what all of the Christian life boils down to, to, doesn't it? It's just just living by faith. So think for a moment about the blessings of God that will come to you if you learn to just believe God, to, to trust Him and to embrace His promises. It is absolutely necessary. If I've read this book correctly, it is absolutely necessary that we learn to believe God. And I don't mean just believe in God. Obviously that's the first step. But to believe what God has revealed to us in his word. And we can't believe promises that we don't know about, so that means that we need to be people of the book. So consider with me the following factors that will help you to do just that, that is to build a vibrant faith in the immutable words and the promises of God. And the good news for you tonight is we're only going to deal with the first one. We'll talk about the next two, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday night. But the first one is simply the reality, the reality of biblical faith. Romans 10, verse 11, says it like this, "'Whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame.'" I'm tempted to stop here and preach, but I'll just say this, there has been so much controversy going on in our country lately, amen? I mean, it, it is, you got you to gotta medicate before you can turn on the TV anymore, you, and, and, and you just wonder, these United States of America, are we really that united anymore? It's kind of like the church secretary one time who answered the phone, and the person at the other end of the line said, Is this the United Church of Christ? There is a denomination by that name. Is this the United Church of Christ? She said, This is the Church of Christ, but we're not united. And there are so many things that are going on in our lives where we can... We can make the decision to morally, ethically, and spiritually compromise our convictions in order to go along and get along. That's even true on a Christian college campus. I mean, everything that you'll find in a state university campus is present on a Christian college campus, except there's less of it. I mean, we deal, you deal with it. You're not in a Petri dish simply because you go to Faulkner University. You've got decisions to make every day for or against the Lord. Decisions that will enhance your spiritual growth or decisions that will hurt and erode your soul. And so we all have those choices that we have to make. But I, but I, I love Romans ten eleven in this regard, regard. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. When it all comes about and the Lord comes back with his big ring of keys and says, Gentlemen, it's closing time and we all stand to be judged before God. His people will have no reason whatsoever to feel shame for what we have done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, and for the convictions that we hold. We're not going to say, I spent my whole life on the wrong side. No, we're going to realize that the good guys win. Revelation 17, 14 reminds us of that fact. So faith, and I really want to hammer on this for the last few minutes tonight, faith must have the right object in order to be real faith, not just believing in any old thing. You know, sometimes people say, just have faith, just believe. Sometimes you even see that in a sports audience, don't you? You know, when an improbable team has just kind of played above themselves for a season, and whether it's courtside or field side, you'll see signs of people go, you know, we believe. And I remember seeing that in Major League Baseball for a few years. We just believe, as if belief would propel you to greatness and to winning the World Series or whatever. And sometimes we want to do that spiritually. People say, just have faith, just believe. And when a person says that to me, just have faith, the first question in my mind is, well, faith in what? Or if they say, just believe, the first logical question I think of is, well, believe what? Faith must have an object. And I'm submitting for your consideration tonight and next Sunday night that real biblically defined faith must have the right object. Or it isn't biblical faith. It isn't the kind of faith that will carry through us through this world into the next one. I'm just telling you tonight, there is no power in faith alone. People have faith in a lot of things in this world that do not merit believing in. And you know that, and I know that. So don't think that there's something mystical or magical about just believing. Remember that your faith in mine is no better than its object. Misplaced faith, in fact, is dangerous. We see that around the world constantly. It's not the kind of faith that will move mountains. Remember the Bible says in Mark eleven twenty two that Jesus said to them, Have faith in God. Jesus never said just have faith or just believe. He identified the object. Have faith in God is what Jesus constantly was reminding people that they needed to do. There's a lot of people today. That really think that, and I know this from conversations and also from a lot of reading, that that faith is just really positive thinking. And and I guess that's probably what the people who hold the signs up in the sports arena have in mind. If we'll just think positively enough, you know, that that will in, in fact improve your level of performance. And we just might win the game or whatever. But that doesn't work in the spiritual realm. Faith, real faith is not just positive thinking. Now, it will help you to think positively, and and, and there's nothing wrong with positive thinking, and there's a whole lot to commend it because you've heard me preach, and you know I believe that. But a lot of people think that there's something mystical and magical about just only believing. And the the reality of biblical faith in Romans 10, 11 is, is that we're to believe on him. I repeat, your faith is no better than its object. And if you make faith simply positive thinking, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to get discouraged, but there's going to come a time in your life when you are in a tough circumstance and you're trying to think positively, but you're just not able to do it. You can't find anything about that situation that is positive to accentuate. And so just positive thinking by itself, you'll find that that is not only improbable, but in some situations, maybe even impossible. It's kind of like the little boy who came to his dad and said, Dad, I, I, I flunked my math test today. I really think I did. And the dad said, well, that's negative thinking. You've got to be more positive, son. And he said, okay, I'm positive I flunked my math test today. You know, if you're just looking inside of yourself at your own personal resources and you're trying to use that as the basis for thinking positively. Actually, you're going to find that rather than encouraging you, that's going to discourage you. Because after a while, it's going to dawn on you that you do not have what it takes of your own resources in and of yourself to get the job done. Can I get an amen? We we, we cannot do it ourselves. And, and, and once we buy into the idea that if I just had more faith in myself, then I could always super exceed everyone's expectations and I could always succeed in life. That isn't what the book says. The book says we have to have the right object of our faith and it isn't ourselves. It isn't just a facade of positive thinking. Remember what I've often said, I can do all things is positive mental thinking. That's Philippians 4.13 of course. But that's not all the passage says. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That is positive spiritual believing. And that is qualitatively different than just positive mental thinking. I commend taking that whole verse as your motto for life and not just the first half of it. And I also advise you not to put your faith in faith. And here's what I mean by that. That sounds a little strange. If you put your faith in faith, you are going to be a sitting duck for the devil. The devil's going to come to you and say, figuratively of course, you know you're not good enough to be saved. And you say, I know that. But I'm not putting my faith in myself. The devil will then say, and you know there are hypocrites down in that church with which you have aligned yourself, and you say, "Well, I know that too, and I'm not putting my faith in people. I'm I'm trusting the Lord." The devil will say to you, "But you don't feel the way you would like to feel, that the way you ought to feel all the time." And you say, "Well, I'm not trusting my feelings either. I'm trusting the Lord." Now, you would think that he would go away after all of those appropriate responses to, to the things that he has charged you with. But you know what he'll do? And I think this is really the slyest thing of all. This is one of his most effective weapons in his arsenal. He'll say, you know, you say that you're trusting the Lord, but how do you know that your faith is strong enough? How do you know that your faith is strong is the real thing. How do you know that it's the real deal? You remember Satan, the Bible says, is the accuser of the brethren. He never leaves us alone. And even when you're trying to live by faith, he's going to constantly question your motives. That's his dirtiest and most devious trick, I believe. And and many people just spiritually go under when he when he says that to them. Again in, in a figurative sort of way. If the devil pulls that kind of study if you start listening to those kinds of influences in your life you just tell him look devil I, I am not putting my faith in faith my faith is in the lord jesus christ and and repeat and rinse and repeat when necessary now there's a difference in that just faith in faith as opposed to faith in the lord let me tell you what it is very quickly the least amount of faith hang on to this we're almost through the least amount of faith in the right object is better than strong faith in the wrong object. The least amount of faith in the right object is better than even strong faith in the wrong object. We are to believe in him. Paul says in Second Timothy chapter one, verse 12, "For this cause I suffer these things, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed into him against that day. Paul, what do you believe in? It's not a what, Paul says. It's a whom. I believe in Jesus Christ. And that means I believe everything that he said, everything that he's revealed to me, and everything that he wants me to be doing in my life to make my life the abundant life. But I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where my faith is. We're to be looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 says. And looking unto Jesus is what we're talking about here. Don't, Don't just look at your look. You know, don't look at yourself in a reflection in the mirror. That's not what faith is, and and liking what you see and being satisfied with your spiritual status. Don't put your faith in faith. Put your faith in God. The reality of faith is not positive thinking, and it's not faith in faith. It is faith in God. So again, I say weak faith in the right object is better than misplaced faith in the wrong object. And you may ask this question. But will God honor weak faith? He certainly does. If he didn't, most of us would never receive anything from him and let me give you a biblical answer before we end this discussion in mark 9 there's an account of a man who had a little demon possessed boy came to jesus and said lord i know that you can heal my son and jesus said to him if you can believe this is the mark nine twenty three passage we referenced a moment ago if you can believe all things are possible to them that believe so it's within that context that jesus gave us that statement. And the Bible then says in verses 23 and 24 of Mark 9, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now that may sound paradoxical until you began to think more about the impact of this passage and its meaning. Jesus gave that man, the bottom line is, he gave that man what he needed that day, what he wanted. He had a weak faith. He readily admitted that. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Is that not admission of a weak faith? There are some things that I'm squared away about in regards to God and how he interacts with his people. But there are some things that I still wrestle with. Does that sound anything like us? I mean, we we still wrestle and sometimes we doubt and we have our questions. But it was a weak faith. That man had a weak faith in the right object. And I'm not saying that we ought to have a weak faith because it's always better to have a strong faith, apparently. And Jesus told his disciples, if you can have faith, even as a mustard seed... You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved. That's Matthew 17, 20. What's Jesus saying in that passage? That if you have a mountain that is obscuring your view of the scenery, all you got to do is just pray about it, and God will remove that mountain literally and miraculously so it won't be in your field of it. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that the least amount of faith is greater than the greatest amount of difficulty. That is, whatever your mountain will be, even weak faith, even small faith in the wrong object, or in the right object, rather, it will be able to move that mountain for you. It will take care of the difficulty in your life if it's a faith in the powerful God that spoke this universe into existence. And so if you want your faith to grow, you don't put your faith in faith, you put your faith in God. And that's the only way to have strong faith is to, is to find out who God is. And I guess, and I really hadn't thought about it till now, that is the major premise of this lesson. The only way we can have faith of any kind, weak or strong, and the only way that our faith can ever grow, is for us to constantly, our magnificent obsession must be to find out who God really is. And there's only one owner's manual that will do that for us, and we're holding it in our hands. Now, if you want to cross a bridge and you don't know whether that bridge will hold you up, you might be afraid and you tremble and you try to make yourself believe and you might tell yourself, well, it looks strong enough to hold my weight and whatever. And you could even screw up your courage and endeavor to believe that as you cross that bridge, It's it's, it's someone has said that's the I think I can, I think I can approach, you know, just pump yourself up psychologically despite what the facts may be. But that would be ridiculous. All you need to do is just look at the bridge. And as you watch that bridge, you see big semi-trucks carrying 40 tons of cargo crossing that bridge. And after you've done that for a while, you realize it's not going to be a problem for me and my little car to go across that bridge. So when you see the bridge, when you understand what the bridge was designed to do and can do, it's going to be very easy for you to cross that bridge. Let me say it with another quick illustration. Up in the northern parts near the source of the Mississippi River, it was a bitterly cold winter, and the river itself had frozen over. And there was a man who, rather than going a half mile down, downstream to, to get to the bridge, decided, hey, the easy thing for me to do would be to walk across this frozen river to the other side. Now, don't get ahead of me. This probably is not going to turn out exactly the way you think it will. But he didn't see anybody else out there, so he couldn't really gauge whether or not anyone else had successfully crossed the river on its frozen surface. It looked pretty crusty and thick to him but he didn't really know how thick or thin it might be. So he said to himself, I really believe I can can walk across this and I won't have to journey all the way down to the bridge. I can save a lot of steps. And this man began to walk across the river on that ice. And when he got some distance from the shore, he looked at the other shore and it seemed to be farther away than when he started. And he thought, well, maybe, just maybe, I ought not to be out here. Maybe the ice won't hold me up. And if I fall through, they're never going to know what happened to me. I'm a fool. What am I doing out here? It's what he began to sermonize to himself. And as he turned around to go back to the other side, he said to himself, You know, I better walk softly. No telling how thin the ice is. And then he thought, I need to get down on all fours so that my weight will be distributed and it won't all be in one point. And then he said to to himself, that's not enough. I need to get down on my belly and I'll squirm across back to to the original side where I started. And, And I may still go through the ice. What a fool I am. My wife will never know what happened to me. And he began to whimper and cry, and then he heard it, a roaring, cracking sound. He said to himself, oh, my worst fears are realized. The ice is breaking. I'm a goner. He put his face down and began to, to cry and to pray, and he said, God, save me. Help me, Lord. The noise got closer and closer, that rumbling and that roaring, but the ice didn't seem to be breaking. And he looked up, and there was a man with a team of horses with a wagon full of logs that was crossing the river right where he was. That was the noise he had heard. And when he saw that, he jumped up, brushed the ice off of his clothes, and took a leisurely stroll across the breadth of the river. All he needed to know was the facts. And all you and I need to know about God are the facts. And we must avail ourselves of the information that has been supplied to us. What's the difference of the two men we just talked about? Well, the second man knew the ice, the reality of our faith is based on the knowledge of God. Remember, one who believes on him shall not be put to shame, Romans 9, You want to have strong faith, don't try to make yourself believe. Just get to know God. You want to have strong faith, get to know God. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, Psalm 9, verse 10. Daniel eleven thirty two. the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. That's the reality of biblical faith. Your faith is no better than its object. We must get to know God. A blind girl one day was caught in a fire on the 10th store of a building. She could make her way to the window, but of course, being blind, she couldn't see anything, and so she was terribly frightened. She felt the heat. She could smell the smoke as it grew denser. And then she heard a fireman below who was yelling, and apparently he was doing it in her direction, and he was encouraging her to jump. He would say over and over again, jump, just jump. And the fireman said, if you don't jump, you're going to die. You just take the risk and jump, and and I promise we'll catch you. And it's bad enough to jump from ten stories up, but to jump when you can't see where you're jumping is absolute terror, and that's exactly what the young girl was experiencing. And in the middle of that chaos and confusion, she then heard another voice that said, sweetheart, jump, I've got you. And she said, yes, daddy, I'll jump. Her father had arrived on scene. It was his voice that she heard. And she jumped into the safety of their arms. What I'm saying is that faith really does constitute not a blind leap in the dark, but it does constitute a willingness on our part to jump, to accept God's love and acceptance of us, to be willing to do everything that God has prescribed in order to have our sins forgiven. That includes this faith we're talking about that leads us to repentance, being sorry for the way we've lived our lives and a corresponding determination not to live that way anymore, to confess Jesus as God's Son and be baptized to have all of our sins washed away. And maybe for some of you tonight, it isn't a question of the facts. You've studied enough to know what God wants you to do. Right now, all you need to do is just jump while we stand and while we sing.